dive into our text this morning. Father God, uh, we need you uh, more than we know because our weaknesses are deeper than we think. And our greatest problem, the problem of sin, is far worse than we ever imagined. So, Father, this morning I pray that you would speak through your text. May we see ourselves in the disciples. And may we see what Mark saw in Christ this morning, which is a glorious Savior. Father, I pray that those who are far from you this morning would hear the gospel message and come to faith in you. To all those who are struggling, Father, I pray that you would wrap your loving arms around them. Father, we ask you to do all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I pray that you do, I invite you to open up to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Uh, as you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I love to do this in the sermons. Uh, my, one of my favorite type of shows to watch is uh, superhero movies. Anybody else? Fans? Bill shaking his head? No? Okay. Well, I got a tough crowd this morning, but uh, one of my favorite shows, regardless of whether you like them or not. Uh, but anyways, Superman... Is probably hands down the most iconic superhero of all time. Superman has lots of powers. He can fly. Anybody here fly? That's what I thought. (laughs) See what I mean? He's super strong, nearly invulnerable. He can shoot lasers out his eyes. He can see through walls. He sees and hears across great distances with surprising precision. He excels so hard he can put out fires and In one of the movies, he even turned back the hands of time by flying around the world. Anybody see that? Anyways, Superman had explosive power. He was so strong, there was nothing that he couldn't lift. And if that was all he had was some sort of explosive power and strength, we might not be that impressed. As a matter of fact, he may be like the character Wolverine. Uh, Wolverine also had explosive power, but one of the things that set Superman apart from Wolverine is the fact that he had lightning speed. Imagine if he was super strong, but it took forever when you called him. He had lightning speed. Or imagine he could get to you when you called for him, but he was powerless to do anything to help you. You see, this is why Superman is one of the greatest superheroes of all time. We can debate afterwards. You just have to listen and accept this morning. But even though he had explosive power, even though he had lightning speed, even though he could do all of these things, Superman still was familiar with the plight of weakness. All those who know of Superman know that he, he had one weakness. It was kryptonite. You get this gem green looking thing around Superman and all of a sudden his powers are gone. As a matter of fact, too much kryptonite around Superman for too long could actually kill the man. You see, Superman, one of the greatest superheroes of all time, knew what it was to be weak. And if we're honest this morning, we can relate. We we too know what it means to be weak. We know far too well the predicament of weakness. We don't like to admit it, but we know it's there. I know some of the men in the room here are, are, are big into weightlifting. It doesn't matter how much you bench press. It doesn't matter how much you deadlift. You still know what it means to be weak. And that's true of all of us. Like Superman, we know what it means to be 
We, the problem is we just don't like to admit it, do we? As a matter of fact, we live in a culture that very much tries to push down and, and hide our weaknesses and glory in our strengths and ignore our weaknesses. We live in a culture which tells young men, you better stop crying. And I tell my son this all the time, I'll admit. To not cry, not show weakness, but rather simply major on your strengths. Hide your weaknesses, pretend they aren't there. And the problem is, some weaknesses are more glaring than others. For example, perhaps you don't take criticism well. Perhaps you are impatient, like me. Lazy, easily bored, Maybe you're a procrastinator. Maybe you think, take things too personally. Maybe you're strong-willed like Myra. Perhaps you don't listen well like her father. We all know what it means to be weak. The problem is we very rarely come to grips with the reality behind our weaknesses. But you see, our, our greatest problem this morning is not our weaknesses. Our greatest problem this morning is something which the world has no answer for. Our greatest problem this morning is the problem of sin, and sin is our greatest problem. As we dive into our text this morning, Mark's going to remind us of our weaknesses. He reminds us of our sin, and yet he sets before us the solution for our greatest problem. You see, the Gospel of Mark, as you know, has consistently shown us the failure of the disciples. They simply don't get it. It's just something isn't clicking in their brain. There, something is not falling into place. Right? It's one of the beautiful themes that comes out in Mark's gospel. Right? It's unique. If you read Mark and you come away with the fact like, ah, the disciples seem to know what they're talking about. You've missed Mark's point entirely. It's unique to his story, to the structure and the way in which he talks about it. Those closest to Jesus simply do not seem to grasp that Jesus is both the Messiah and Son of God. You see, his disciples knew, right, as Peter declared in Romans, or, um, Mark chapter 8, that Jesus is the Messiah. Yet he did not acknowledge that he was also the Son of God. However, in comparison to the disciples, others in Mark's gospel who you would think would not understand, seem to pick it up. For example, the demons recognize who Jesus is, but the disciples miss it. Blind Bartimaeus can see who Jesus is, but the disciples are blinded to the truth. The Seraphonician woman understood who Jesus is, but the disciples lacked the comprehensive reality of all that it entailed. The Roman centurion, who we'll read about in the coming weeks, stood beneath the cross... And claim this is the Son of God. And yet the disciples were nowhere to be found. The disciples continued to fail. It's like they are here today and gone tomorrow. Every now and then you see a glimpse of hope, a glimpse of hope, and then perhaps they get it, perhaps it's clicking, and then they'll turn around and say something like, I'm the greatest, and miss the point. No matter how many people Jesus healed, no matter how many miracles Jesus performed, no matter how many demons Jesus ran off, the disciples continued to fail. And if we're honest this morning, a lot of us are no different. We're haunted by our own failings. We continue to struggle. We continue to miss the point. We continue to run headlong into situations without trusting that Christ is actually in control. Praise be to God, Mark not only documents the failings of the disciples, but he gives us the life of Christ. 
Mark tells us the good news of God's answer to our problem, to our predicament, is Jesus the King. It is King Jesus. You see, God understands what our problem is. And God came to rescue us from that problem. For 13 chapters, Jesus has been walking. He's been healing broken people. He has been feeding the hungry. He has been preaching the good news that God has heard the cry of his people and that the kingdom has finally come. And this morning, Jesus continues his walk, his walk toward the cross. And this morning, we see in Mark 14 that Jesus comes to the final moment. After this, there will be no turning back. After this, everything will be different. After this, everything falls into place. After this, stands only the cross. There are three movements in our text this morning. We'll walk with Jesus through them, and then I'll be out the way. Number one, Jesus will be abandoned. Look at verse 26 with me. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Remember, the disciples and Jesus... I've just finished the Passover meal where Jesus has ushered in uh, two pieces of news for the disciples that they would need to know. The first is that one of them will betray him. All the disciples to a man ask, is it I? Is it me? Am I the one that will give you up? The second piece of news for the disciples is that Jesus is in fact setting up a new covenant. We looked at this last week. This new covenant with his people would usher in a new exodus like the exodus out of Egypt. The new exodus will be an exodus out of slavery to sin. The old exodus was marked by the blood of a lamb. The new exodus is marked by the blood of the lamb of God. The old exodus was God saving his people by passing over their sins. And the new exodus is God saving his people by placing their sins on his son. You can feel the weight of this, can't you? Put yourself in the room. Listen to the words Jesus is saying. Feel the gravity of the moment. But now walk with Jesus. After having sung a hymn, they get up, leave the upper room, and make their way to the Mount of Olives. Two things on their mind, betrayal and blood. They continue to ring in the disciples' ears as they're walking, as they're making their way to the garden. And in the silence of the moonlight, Jesus says this in verse 27. You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. He just said one of them is going to betray him. Now they're all walking. He says, all of you, all of you, fall away. At the end, it will be just me. You will be nowhere in sight. And he says, uh, in this, he's, he's quoting, right? He's referring to Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 7, where Zechariah says this, Awake, O sore, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. You see, in Zechariah, God is the one who strikes the shepherd. And because the shepherd has been struck, the sheep will scatter. And Jesus reads this prophecy and knows that this very night, the words old Zechariah penned down long ago would come to pass. However, here comes proud for Peter. Look at verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, bro, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. 
But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Notice they all said the same. Peter is and was the ringleader of the disciples. Notice here, he is so shook by the fact that one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his closest disciples would betray him, that he actually starts to view himself as separate and different from all the other disciples. Do you notice this in what Peter says? Do you notice his emphatic response? He says, even though all of those guys, every one of them fall away, not me. Not me, Lord, I'm right here. Peter could not come to grips with the reality that he himself needed what Jesus was trying to accomplish. He was trying to work out his own salvation, but Jesus lovingly and compassionately corrects him. Before the roaster crows twice, you will have already denied me three times. Movement number one of our text is Jesus will be abandoned. He knew it. He knew what was about to come. He knew what was about to come had been ordained by the Father. Jesus would be abandoned. Number two, notice Jesus' prayer is rejected. Look at verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. So Jesus and his disciples go into Gethsemane. You can feel the sense of urgency, the sense of dreadfulness of this moment. You see, Mark gives us in his narrative different emotions of Jesus. We've highlighted some of those as we've walked through this book. We've walked with Jesus through uh, this narrative, seeing Jesus as compassionate. We've seen Jesus angry, righteous angry. We've seen Jesus in sorrow over the sin and brokenness around him, and yet we've seen the tenderness of Christ as he loved those broken people. But at no other point has Mark ever presented before us on this journey a Jesus who is greatly distressed and greatly troubled. Nowhere else in all of our walking with Jesus have we seen him sorrowful to the point of death. Now I want you to notice this, family. It's vitally important that you see your king here in this moment. He's in turmoil. He is beside himself. The scriptures say that his sweat became as blood. This was a man in anguish. In agony. This Jesus who has been walking through the last 13 chapters with his eyes fixed on the cross has now come to the precipice of the moment and he begins to falter. Look what he says in verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. We see Jesus cries to the Father. Notice his continual reliance on God as Father. Abba, Father. He knew he would be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He knew the torment that would rack his body. He knew that they would pull the beard from his face. He knew that they would drive nails into his hands and nails and into his feet. And in the moment, before the beginning of the end, he calls out to his Father. We often hear stories of grown men in the last few moments of their life, call out for their mom. George Floyd, Tyree Nichols, men in the battlefield during every single war. Oh, but when a man calls for his father, it's a different kind of call. 
When men call out for their moms, they want to be soothed. They want the pain of the moment to be washed over with a type of healing balm that only comes from a mother's touch. But when men call out for their fathers, though, they want to be delivered from the trial with a type of strength that only comes from the father's hands. You see, I think in society we've missed this. Right? Doesn't it do something to you, fathers in the room, when your son, when your daughter cries out, Father, help me? Doesn't it do something? Doesn't it stir something in you? I think this is what is happening in this moment. Jesus calls out for his father and he asks his father to deliver him from the trial by removing this cup from him. Now, some of you might not know what's in the cup. Let me help you this morning. You see, the cup contained the full wrath of God. It was the cup which God had been storing up ever since the first sin in the first garden. God had been waiting. You see, some thought God had become unfaithful. Some thought he had become unfaithful to his promise to be just. They thought that God had become some kind of corrupt judge who was no longer capable of dealing out justice. They thought God simply let sinners off the hook. I wonder, have you ever felt that way about God? Have you ever felt that the wicked in the world seem to be getting by without so much as a slap on the wrist? Have you ever been wronged? Have you ever been sinned against? Have you ever questioned God in your heart of, how could this happen? Where's God? How could bad things happen to good people? But you see, God is just. He is righteous. He will not allow sins to go unpunished. And that's what was in the cup, friends. The cup contained the punishment for the penalty of sin. The cup contained the wrath of God. And Jesus is here in the garden pleading with his father, let the cup pass from me. He doesn't want it. But he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Here's what we need to know from this section. Peter does not, or Mark does not explicitly say, and God heard his prayer and rejected it. But we know from reading the rest of the story that God indeed does, does hear his prayer and denies it. He heard his prayer and he denied it. Think about it for a moment. Jesus pleading with God the Father. And God the Father does not answer his son. He tells him no. This is massively important for you today. Massively important. God the Father told Jesus the son no so that God the Father could tell you yes. God ignored Jesus so he could pick up the phone when you called. He poured out his wrath on Jesus so he could lavishly lather his love on you. He denied Jesus so he could approve you. God abandoned Jesus in the garden so that you might never be abandoned. Jesus received wrath so you could receive forgiveness. And Jesus gave up his sinlessness so you could give up your sinfulness. If Jesus had not walked through this moment, you understand that there will be no forgiveness for you. This right here is the gospel. This is the good news. This is God's solution for our greatest problem. You might say, but well, well, we could have just done like the Old Testament, right? 
If Jesus had passed by the cup, he said, no, thank you, and walked away. Couldn't we have just simply, as the Old Testament folks did, just take our lambs and our goats and our sacrifices to the temple? No, no, you see, all of the sacrifices, all the blood that was shed year after year after year was a picture and a pointer to this moment where Jesus the Son would be sacrificed by God the Father. The Old Testament contained what the New Testament revealed. It was the gospel all along. And here Jesus is walking through that garden. Understand that we do not have a God who knows what our problem is and is powerless to do anything about it. We have a God who knows what our problem is and can fix it. But yet more important perhaps than that is we have a God who knows what it's like when we go through trials in our own life. This is why the writer of Hebrews would say, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, Jesus knows what your problem is and can fix it. And he knows what it's like to be you in your problem. Jesus was rejected. Jesus' prayer was rejection. Number three, Jesus did it alone. Look at verse 37. And he came... And found then the disciples sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Notice, by the way, he calls him his original name. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Here is Jesus in the heaviest moment of his life. He has told the disciples that he is sorrowful unto death. You would think if you had received this kind of news from a friend, you would be there, right? You think, I, I, I'm there for you, bro. But yet, where were his disciples? Sleeping. As a matter of fact, I think Mark gives us here emphasis. He had to go back three times to wake these fools up. You see, the disciples were weak. They needed rest. They couldn't keep their eyes open. It's funny, he comes the second time. He's like, we don't even know how to answer you, Jesus. We got no words. We just weak. Weak men. And you and I are not much different. Throughout this passage of Mark, he is showing us that Jesus alone is the one who saves. Jesus alone is the Christ, and Jesus alone is the Son of God. What did the disciples offer to this moment? Nothing but weakness. Nothing but failure. What do you offer in your moment before God? Nothing. Weakness and failure. Weakness and failure. It's God alone. Jesus alone paid the penalty for your sin. Now the disciples here remind us some other folks in a garden. Don't miss this. Adam and Eve were in a garden when they failed God. And the disciples are here in a garden where they failed God. 
Paul makes point of this, this comparison between Adam and Christ uh, in Romans. Before a moment here, just think with me with the sanctified imagination. You see, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve's sin brought death into the world. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' uh, choice to be obedient for us sinners. Jesus chose to be obedient for us sinners that we might be saved. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve enjoyed luxury and abundance. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus experienced agony and despair. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve each had each other to care for. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was alone in his suffering as his disciples slept nearby. In the Garden of Eden, having the forbidden fruit seemed a delight to the eyes. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the cup of suffering was painful to receive. In the Garden of Eden, there's no record of Adam and Eve ever praying. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed very desperately. In the Garden of Eden, Eve talked to the serpent who deceived her. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said yes to God who then later exalted him. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve dishonored the Lord. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus to his death. In the Garden of Eden, the angel, the cherubic angel, was placed to prevent re-entry of Adam and Eve back into the Garden due to their disobedience to the will of God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, a way back to the presence of God was made available to each and every one of us. In the Garden of Eden, mankind, by way of their choice, had to face the prospect of a hopeless end. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus made his choice so that those who believe in him would have endless hope. In the first garden, Adam said to the Father, Not your will, but mine be done. And all of creation was plunged into sin. In the second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the second Adam, says, Not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus' response should be what all of our responses are. And yet all of our responses are what Adam's are without the work of Christ and the Spirit in our lives. Jesus alone. In conclusion, Jesus will be abandoned. Jesus' prayer will be rejected. And Jesus will do it alone. We've seen all of this come true in the last section of our text. Look at verse 43. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. Lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. You did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the beginning of the end. There's no turning back at this point. Jesus is alone at the end of Mark's gospel, or at the end of this passage, in chains. His disciples are nowhere to be found. His disciples have scattered. The naked man at the end of Mark's account is to show how utterly alone Christ was. No one remained by his side. Utterly alone to face the cross. All of it. Part of God's plan. Don't forget. Zechariah. He said, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. 
None of this is a surprise. This is all going according to the Father's plan. And Jesus willingly walks into it. I wonder who here is still like Peter, lying on their own strength. Who like Peter are trying to save themselves. Who like Peter says, I don't care if everyone else falls away, but not me, Lord. The point of Mark's story and the point of including this story into the gospel account is so that you and I know that it's Jesus alone who saves. We do not save ourselves. We need Christ's work. Who here thinks that God has in some way failed you because of someone has sinned against you? Know that all sin, all sin, all sin, past, present, future sins, all sins are dealt with in one of two ways. Either Jesus took the sin in the cup and the wrath was poured out upon him, or your sin will be paid for an eternal lake of fire. Therefore, Christian, you can walk in a world, be openly hated, persecuted against God, be sinned against, and walk with joy in your heart because you know that those who sinned against you will either become brothers and sisters in Christ or God will deal with their sin on the last day. It's why we have hope. It's why we uh, are, are immovable, steadfast in our faith and our commitment to Christ, no matter what may come our way. As we close this out, let me just challenge you to look inside your own life. Are there still areas where you're wrestling with the Lord trying to say, I got this? You need to lovingly open your hands and give it to him. Whether that be a sin, whether that be a weakness that you still hold on to as a clutch. May we all be better at recognizing our own weaknesses and giving those over to Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Lord, it was according to the foreknowledge and the preordained plan from before the foundations of the world that what Christ walks into this morning would be for our good and for your glory. Lord, as we fix our eyes on upcoming Easter and Good Friday, and Lord, may we be May we be completely changed because of this story. Well, Superman is, has a weakness of kryptonite, but we have a weakness far greater, a weakness of sin in our lives. May we realize the only freedom from slavery to sin is by the death of Christ in our place. Lord, I pray you would open blinded eyes this morning, have them see the good news of the glorious gospel. Lord, may we who love you continue to grow in the spirit, continue to grow in grace, love one another, and long for the day where you will make all things right. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.